0: Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. We've got a great episode for you today. I'm speaking with Air Force retired Brigadier General Robert Spalding about his new book, War Without Rules, China's Playbook for Global Domination. This book is all about... General Spalding's interpretation of a famous book from the late 1990s called Unrestricted Warfare, a strategy document written by two People's Liberation Army officers that really cataloged how they thought China should approach challenging the U.S. for hegemony in the Asia Pacific region. This has huge implications, especially given the fact that General Spalding argues the strategy they outlined was entirely followed and is going to play out in a possible conflict with Taiwan and other questions that come down to the nature of the U.S.-China relationship, especially after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So as General Spalding points out, unrestricted warfare is actually pretty dense. So it's great to get a retired Air Force general to walk you through the ideas that, once again, whether you are a China hawk, whether you are a China dove, is going to be deeply important. Because once again, this is a book which is guiding a strategy that one has to come up with an answer to, regardless of whether you are hawkish or Dovish. Of course, quick notes before we get into this episode. This is part of our expanded coverage that we are doing due to our supercast subscription. I have another episode coming out tomorrow which is going to be all about the student loan question. It's with an author named Josh Mitchell, who's at the Wall Street Journal. He's written a great book about student loans. It's called The Debt Trap. So we're going to really respond to a lot of the discussion episode that Sagar and I did around the student loan question. We got so much listener response to that, so we're super curious how people respond to that episode. Of course, Sagar and I are recording a discussion back and forth episode on Friday as well. So definitely write into realignmentpod at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts or things you want us to discuss to keep those really dynamic. Once again, the last thing I note here is it's so helpful that so many people have subscribed to our Supercast and paid to help us support the show, expand our coverage, and put out really great content. So, if you could afford to, we'd appreciate if you go into the top of the podcast description when you click on the episode. The top link will be to a Supercast link. If you could give us five a month, 50 a year, or 500 for a lifetime membership, we'd appreciate it so much. Of course, another sponsor that helps us keep this show going is Lincoln Network. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Hope you enjoy this episode general spalding welcome back to the realignment
1: great to be back thank you
0: Yeah, we recorded this originally in person in November 2019, so this was one of our last ever in-person pre-COVID recordings. So I just want to start off with a useful anecdote you gave at the start of the book, which is you said, as an Air Force officer in the 1990s, you were a B-2 bomber pilot. You really focused on an intellectual level at taking a step back and looking at the big picture. What would you say the big picture is for the conversation we're about to have today?
1: It's that the internet and globalization has really changed the way that you look at conflict on a global basis. It's uh, today, I think, much more about ones and zeros and dollars and cents and much less about weapons, although weapons continue to be used. But I would say that of the things that are useful and actually effective in terms of actually creating geopolitical outcomes, the ones and zeros and dollars and cents matter much more.
0: So... We're referencing obviously a B two bomber. This is a stealth bomber. This is really the height of 1990s American post Desert Storm military dominance. How much do you think advanced weapons platforms like a B two, like the B two Spirit, like let's say the B twenty one, other types of technologies are going to make a difference in the context of this conversation?
1: Well, I don't think it's going to make a difference in the context of the competition or the conflict, the cold conflict that's coming between uh, the US and China or the US and Russia. I think it's going to continue to be used on the outskirts, you know in proxy conflicts. I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a good example of a proxy conflict that uh, you know very much mirrors the you know the North Koreans invasion of South Korea. During the first Cold War. So I think we're starting to see history replay itself. Those weapons and that killing w- is going to be effectively used on those battlefields. But I think in terms of, you know, how the major powers um, confront each other, it's going to be much more in the finance, economics and data realms than in the actual kinetic
0: And as I said, you came on the show before. Normally, I would say, hey, listeners, just re-listen to the episode. But November 2019 doesn't feel just like two and a half years ago. It feels like 10 years ago. So I just want you to quickly sum up what your argument was when you said that we are in the middle of a stealth war.
1: Well, what I was trying to say was that, you know, I had learned a a completely different form of warfare, one where military force was used to achieve a political outcome, one in keeping with the traditions that Klaus talked about when he said war is politics by other means and i think what i had learned in watching what the chinese communist party had been doing for over two decades was that they had really embraced this idea of using the everyday the you know our financial transactions our trade our uh, geopolitical relationships our academics to move Their uh, the world in a way that was favorable to you know what their interests were.
0: And the key thing here in this story, aside from just COVID, obviously which we'll get into, was in between our two tapings. Obviously, you had a transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. You specifically state that the Biden administration has gotten some things right, but they are still undercounting the broader picture here. How would you rate this transition when it came to approaching these issues?
1: Well, I would say that I'm genuinely happy that for the most part, you know, they didn't get rid of the tariffs, although they have rolled some of them back. I think they have embraced a lot of the changes that the Trump administration implemented. But, you know, and I don't think this is owing completely to the Biden administration, because you have U.S. corporate sector and the U.S. financial sector lobbying both the Hill and the executive branch not to be harder on China. But, you know, for the most part, they have continued a trend that you know, was started in the Trump administration of half measures. You know, they they uh, there was a lot of good and there has and there continues to be a lot of good. But, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is so effective on such a broad basis that a, a little bit of good is not going to um, overturn kind of all the things that they're doing.
0: I want to get to the specific claims you're making about China in the book to really set the stage. So you specifically refer to China and obviously the Chinese Communist Party as an explicit enemy. And as you state, back when you worked at the NSC during the Obama administration in 2014, that was a very controversial way of putting it. So explain why that's controversial and why you explicitly think the term enemy is an appropriate one.
1: Well, you know, we um, like to say that they can be either uh, cooperative or competitive, but we never want to call them an enemy. And that's really something that I think comes from uh, what I was saying, where the corporate sector and the financial sector really do not want that term to be used vis a vis China. And I think also from, you know, the national security and foreign policy establishment within Washington, D.C., they're very hesitant to use the word enemy. And I think we've been conditioned um, to think in that way, uh, not just, you know, by our own corporate and financial sector, but also the Chinese Communist Party themselves. You know, one of the favorite phrases they have is that, you know, we shouldn't, you know, take a Cold War attitude, or we shouldn't have a Cold War approach, or we shouldn't use Cold War thinking. And the reason is, is because during the Cold War, the Soviet Union was cut off from the innovation, technology, talent, and capital of the West. They were isolated. And the Chinese Communist Party loves its connection to the West for these things. It doesn't love its connection for the ideals of the West. And so, you know, if it it fears that if these ideas of cold war thinking are actually brought into play then we might actually do something that would prevent them from having such sway over our society so this is an i think a campaign that they're waging it's a it's a narrative control it's a it's a narrative campaign that that they're waging on the west to keep us you know from saying hey, we're, we're we're entering a cold war and for the most part we play along and not calling them an enemy besides, you know, um, besides the fact that they call us an enemy internally. So when they speak to themselves about us, they say the United States is an enemy. And so by not saying they're an enemy and not saying that we're in the Cold War, it really it, it disarms us rhetorically. And it also forces us to, you know, have to not to take basically half measures. It's it's very effective, you know, uh, in terms of one of the strategies that they that they're, that they're um, using.
0: Do you worry that one of the more devil's advocate arguments for avoiding the term enemy is it's going to constrain our flexibility and options when it comes to very very complicated scenarios? So, what, what do you respond to that concern with?
1: Well, I think we're already constrained. And I think the the constraint happened, you know, with the invention of the nuclear weapon. And, you know, so in you could make a case that the Atlantic Charter that was signed by FDR and Churchill in 1941 and and kind of uh, became the template for the international order after the end of World War Two, you could say that what was strains a uh, major war in the, in the, in the vein of, of World War I or World War II where tens and hundreds of millions of people were killed. You know, what restrains us from that is the, the international order and the you know, documents like the Atlantic Charter. You could make that claim. I would say that's only partly correct. The other thing that you would have to look at is the invention of the nuclear weapon really made warfare dangerous, for the human race. And I think that is restraining in and of itself. And so we have enough restraint in terms of violence because of the technology that we created. But in using rhetorical restraints, it actually prevents us from protecting ourselves from the kind of competition that our society in the West was really never prepared for. And that is the undermining of our societies from within.
0: Yeah, because I want to put a really strong pin on what you're basically suggesting, which is because of the existence of nuclear weapons, there's no world where we say, hey, let's invade China in the manner that we invaded Iraq or the manner that we decapitated the Taliban regime. Is, is that basically what you're suggesting? So we are just so structurally limited by the existence of nuclear weapons that the hypothetical wouldn't exist in a way that it existed pre-World War II. Is that a, is that a way of putting it?
1: That, that's, that's exactly right. It's a, it's a completely different ball game, And because it's a different ballgame, that and the invention of the Internet and the you know, relaxation of the rules that enabled globalization has given us a completely different battlefield um, from which to conduct war. And war is primarily a political act. We know this. It is achieving a a political outcome using other means. And in the case of what the unrestricted warfare really talks about, it is using means that, quite frankly, we have associated with the spread of peace or the spread of democracy or the spread of transparency and openness. In fact, those tools, the Internet and globalization, have been used to reverse all of the gains that we made after end of world war ii and with the cold war leading to the victory over the soviet union during the cold war so we made tremendous gains but have been completely rolled back because of the existence of this new battlefield and the fact that we never positioned our societies to be successful in this kind of a a a war and we'll get to
0: unrestricted warfare just a couple more specifics here and this was what was interesting in the way you framed the 2014 disagreement which was many folks believe and this is a right and a left thing when it comes to the enemy phrase is that there are opportunities for cooperation so if you are more left-leaning if you're a democrat if you're john kerry specifically you think the opportunity and the necessary thing to do is cooperate with china on climate change This is a little more bipartisan, but there's also this idea that you need China's cooperation to constrain the North Korean threat. So, even under, so you make this argument specifically that actually China doesn't believe either of those issues are in their interest to actually resolve, but address the China fakery point, but then also articulate why you don't think there even is an opportunity there, regardless of the terms we're using.
1: Well, they use, they know that we want to prevent climate change or we want to prevent environmental destruction that is in our dna it's something that we have you know worked through as a society we were polluting the land and the air and the water just like china does today but then we had you know this you know this ability through our society and the rule of law to address that to have activism and to eventually pass laws that that made you know that kind of behavior illegal. So I think when you think of environmental destruction or climate change, you know, we have an interest in seeing the world preserved from an environmental standpoint. At the same time, you know, we want to ensure and preserve the democracy that is South Korea. We want to protect our ally, Japan, and we see North Korea as a threat. So we also want to solve that. In terms of what the Chinese Communist Party wants, they want to continue to have access to our innovation, technology, talent, and capital. That's in spite of the fact that we know that they're stealing intellectual property. We know that we're, they're, un, we're, they're undermining our universities and our political system and, and influencing our uh, corporate sector and our financial sector. And so we seek to restrain them in doing so. But what happens is when we go to them and say, hey, we want you to stop doing these things, then because of the existence of this need to solve climate change and the North Korea problem, we disarm ourselves because the Chinese Communist Party knows that those are two issues it can use to prevent us from protecting ourselves. So it's it's a valid negotiating strategy on their part. And since, by the way, you know, in China proper, you know, coal is uh, increasingly being used in spite of their, their commitment, you know, their so-called commitment to climate change, in spite of their joining the, the Paris Accord, Um, The the North Koreans have uh, access to nuclear and, you know, intercontinental ballistic missile technology, in spite of the fact that they've had pretty strict, you know, non-proliferation regimes for decades. We know that that technology comes from China. We know that the Chinese aren't doing anything to uh, on behalf of the climate, but these issues are so powerful in our own political system that the Chinese Communist Party can leverage them to disarm us from protecting us in other places.
0: So something I'd want to then get to then is obviously the title of the book, what it's referencing, which is Unrestricted Warfare. Introduce the text. What are the central ideas? Who wrote it? Those bits. And then we'll get into the specifics.
1: Well, it's written by two PLA at the time, Lieutenant Colonels, uh, Chao Liang and Wang Changsui. I don't know. Could you
0: clarify what the PLA is for Non. Oh,
1: sure. Yeah, sure. So People's Liberation Army. So it is the armed wing of the Chinese Communist Party. You know, people think it's the national military of China. No, it is a military uh, that is responsible to the Chinese Communist Party for preserving the Chinese Communist Party's survival and Especially its control over the Chinese people. So it doesn't represent the Chinese people. It doesn't represent the Chinese nation. It represents the Chinese Communist Party. These two colonels or lieutenant colonels at the time were tasked with coming up with some principles to define how they might deal with the fact that at the time, you know, China was you know, a backwater when it came to military capability. The U.S. had demonstrated its absolute superiority during the first Gulf War, and they recognized that the Chinese Communist Party and the PLA could not directly challenge the United States militarily. But what was happening because of the ending of the Cold War and this loosening up of the restrictions of economic and political and social and academic Connections between the authoritarian regimes of the world and the free societies, these two uh, realized that the two things that were happening at the time the internet was nascent and globalization was going to give them the opportunity to have the ability to bring in the innovation and the technology and the talent, and in particular, the capital, the wherewithal to rebuild their nation. And in that process, restore the greatness of China. So the problem that they had recognized, however, was that in 1989, you know, during the Tiananmen uh, uh, massacre, the Chinese Communist Party realized that they were getting this, you know, ideology transfer that was coming with those, you know, with the capital and the innovation, and they needed to restrict that. And so what, what they laid out in in doctrine is um, exists in militaries everywhere where you have it in the United States. And it it basically comes from lessons learned on the battlefield that is, you know, from which you distill certain principles Uh, in the United States, we have joint doctrine, we have air doctrine, we have land doctrine, we have sea doctrine, and it's used to provide those principles that, you know, leaders and planners use to craft, campaigns and, and, and strategies for, you know, defeating an adversary on the battlefield. Well, what they were seeing was the evolution of this new battlefield and they wanted, and they were looking at the lessons learned and there's a lot of lessons learned. One of the big ones that they talk about is the Asian financial crisis and how George Soros had, you know, precipitated the Asian financial crisis in their mind. And how, you know, that was a as much a danger to a nation as a military attack. And so looking at these different environmental things that they were seeing with the internet and globalization, and the lessons they had learned from watching that play out in other societies, they formulated a set of principles that then could be used to create an advantage on that battlefield. And, and that's essentially, you know, what, in
0: effect, uh, restricted warfare. And something I want to get to a couple of things on this. So, firstly, why did these two lieutenant colonels have so much weight? Like you obviously retired as a brigadier general. You are deeply aware of the fact that there are I'd say thousands of lieutenant colonels in the US military. Um I'm sure we could agree that if two lieutenant colonels were to write a paper of this type of ambition, it would not make that much impact. I'm sure there are plenty sitting in dustbins, virtual or otherwise. Why did they specifically have so much influence in their system?
1: Well, I think, you know, and you go back and look at the document, they were so prescient and they were so, I think, insightful when it came to analyzing these trends that were coming together you know, it just happened to be, you know, I think they were in the right place at the right time with the right perspective to, you know, again, doctrine doesn't come out of thin air. It comes from taking a, you know, honest look at what's going on around you and, you know, creating, you know, a set of principles, distilling it to into a set of principles, you know. John Boyd was very influential um, in, in the military, more so in the Marine Corps than the Air Force from which he came. But never nevertheless, you know, his ideas, you know, the OODA loop, for example, is is widely taught in in military education. Um, another, an, another gentleman, John Warden, you know, who what led the you know strategy development for the first Gulf War. Also, those are two, you know, colonels that were influential. These were people that, you know, thought about war took the time and then, you know, had keen insights that, you know, ended up being part of the fabric of what we understand about warfare. I just think that, quite frankly, because these guys came from China and because their ideas were so out of character from what we know as war, um, never really, I think, got the credit that they deserve for so vividly laying out, you know, there was no iPhone when they wrote about this, there was no mobile internet, there was no, there was no um, ability to foresee, I think, in the way that they did, where things would go for the average person much less for somebody that's, uh, you know, thinks about war, because if you think about what they were saying, you know, guys like me who thought that they knew everything about war, it was totally, totally outside of, you know, what we could see. Like, perceptually, when I read that document the first time, it, it, it really made absolutely no sense. And that just tells you, In my mind, how forward looking they were and how they had this probably has to do with the fact that they were um, Chinese and the fact that the People's Liberation Army is a political, you know, wing of uh, of the Chinese Communist Party. I think they were far more political and far more savvy in terms of politics. And that enabled them to, to, to see this. But, you know, I think they were they were um, just in the right place at the right time, had the right frame of mind from which to think about these problems, and then, you know, did a good job, you know, not, it, it, not the best job at writing it, because it's really dense and, and hard to follow. But if you can break through that, you can see the, the, the wisdom in what they were writing.
0: You know, it, it's it's funny. I tried to show off um, and I purchased, um, I, it's available for free. As you know, I purchased a copy and you were not under, you, you were not exaggerating when you say it, it's very dense. I, I really am suggesting to the listeners that uh, if you want to show off like I do, stick with uh, your, stick with War Without Rules first and then get to Unrestricted Warfare if you, if you think is there. So what's what's actually, and I just want to editorialize for a second. I think what's useful, what you just, just said here is it's not that they write this book or they, they write Write um, the paper, the white paper, and then a young Xi Jinping reads it and then implements. It's that they were incisive about the logical, let's just say, implications of developments in the 1990s. And if history proceeded in the way they described, it's because they were onto those trends. Not that this was a master plan per se. Is that is, is that a way of putting it?
1: It, it is. And, and the other thing is, you know, it inspired a whole bunch of other writing. Within China, and I think that's the other thing that people miss. That inspiration came because they were so insightful. And you know, it's funny because you talk to Chinese scholars, and they say, "Oh, you know that that really didn't you know mean much in China, you know, in in terms of national security." But yet, you know, Chao Liang is uh, you know got promoted to as a general officer, and he's teaching at National Defense University. So, and it spawned a whole you know a whole cottage industry of thinking about warfare in a completely different way.
0: So then another question on the political aspect of warfare, because I think it's really interesting how you specifically said the PLA is best understood as a military arm of a political party rather than just a military in the sense that the U.S. Army, the U.S. Air Force, Marine Corps, et cetera, exists how do you see US military officers, you being a retired one yourself, able to understand these whole of society issues? Because I speak through this podcast, I speak with a lot. I spoke with retired generals such as yourself, lieutenant colonels, people who teach at the war colleges, et cetera. And obviously, their defense policy analysis is great, the foreign policy analysis is great. I would say a lot of the time, the, let's just say, like political economic analysis is fine to a well-informed New York Times reader, just being entirely honest. So like, how, how, do, how do you as a, civ- now currently a civilian, obviously, how, how do you think about this idea of military folks having to think about these political and economic issues outside of the, uh, outside of the typical strategic analysis part?
1: Well, if you look at all of our pro- professional military education, it's really clear. The general's job, you know, and I'm talking about Clausewitz and Jomini, the general's job is to prepare for the war. It's not his responsibility or her, her responsibility to figure out, you know, whether to go to war. And if they are tasked with going to war, then they're supposed to get wide latitude with which to prosecute the war. In other words, give me the means and tell me you know, what you want, and then I will go achieve it. And then I want to study the profession of arms. You know, I it, it's almost as if you know, I am a dishwasher working in a kitchen. I don't want to know anything about what the kitchen is doing. I'm just going to wash the dishes. And so in in many ways we are stunted by the way that we have grown up as a profession of arms. You know, Clausewitz says war is politics by other means. But don't worry about the politics. That's for the country's leaders. Your job is to figure out the war. Well, if war is politics by other means, And somebody comes along and says, "Okay, well, I think politics is war. And therefore, the the way that I should pursue it is through politics. If that is the case, then we as a profession of arms is are completely disarmed. We're not given any training on how to navigate, you know, politics. If politics is warfare, we're out of the game. We can blow things up, right? And this really was brought home to me with the islands in the South China Sea. The Chinese are building bases in the South China Sea. And the president wants the military to come up with options. Well, what can the military do? We can blow up the islands. That's what we would do if we were military. Well, but that's not what the president wants. He doesn't want to go to war with China. Well, that's not a... This is the beauty of war without rules because it forces, you know, the people that are you know charged with becoming professional warriors of our society. It basically takes them off the field because they are not given the tools. They're not given the authority, not not given any responsibility with trying to figure out how do you navigate a political war? So, I mean, in, in many ways, it is, I believe, the, the only um the only corollary to this is the Maginot Line. You know, during World War II, you know, we've created this professional class of warriors in the West that really have no way. They don't have the tools. They don't have the training. They don't have the professional education. They don't have the savvy with regard to finance or economics or trade. Any of the tools that you would use in this game of political warfare, they are not schooled in, and so. They are, But yet they are the ones that are tasked with defending the nation, or or at least being the professionals that we call on. They're the dishwashers we call, but they don't have any of the tools. And then the people that you would call, the people that work in the Commerce Department or the Treasury Department or the State Department or maybe the Department of Justice, they don't think in terms of war. They're not taught to be a warrior class. So this is why what the Chinese Communist Party is doing is so effective.
0: And let's be fair to uh, your former colleagues in the military and focus on the civilian side for a second, because, you know, I... The deeper I delve into these issues, the more I dislike when civilians say the cliche, well, we don't have a draft anymore, so the civilians don't know how the military works. And that's always a big problem. There's some very serious arguments against reinstating the draft that would cause probably far more problems than actual um, advantages relative to the all-volunteer force. But like once again, I think the the idea that that cliche is getting at is this idea That the civilian side of things is having has a weaker and weaker grasp of almost the military aspect, especially now, to your point, where we are pivoting from this Middle Eastern centric conflict and pivoting towards this much more great power centric one, where A lot of the rhetoric and the language and even the concepts at a strategic and tactical level just have nothing to do with the war on terror. So how do you see the civilian side of this picture when it comes to strategic difficulties dealing with unrestricted warfare?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the that's the beauty of this thing. Um, And it's really the beauty of war without rules. See, um, the civilian side, the political leadership are absolutely perfectly oriented for combat because they do it to each other. And that's what the Chinese Communist Party is counting on, right? because the way that they go at our social fabric is to create and exacerbate the divisions between us. And so rather than inspiring um, this collective that can fight at the same level with the Chinese Communist Party, if they saw the Chinese Communist Party as a political adversary, Right. If the Democrats saw the Chinese Communist Party as to as big an enemy to them as they see the Republican, they would be very effective at fighting this war because it is a political war. But because of the way the Chinese fights and it creates these divisions it not creates it exacerbates these divisions, then instead of. Coming together and going after the chief political opponent that they have, they go after further after each other and it causes even further social, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, disadhesions. And this is the this is really the beauty of 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 um, of war without rules. And it is. In a sense, you know, we have within ourselves the understanding of how to defeat the Chinese Communist Party if we could only see them as a political adversary. But unfortunately, you know, that's that's the, the challenge. And it's, so it, it becomes one of perspective and thinking about the problem and understanding the challenges we face and understanding the context that you know, I saw this at the White House when we I had this um, series of uh, what I called winning without war, where we where we debated these different types of war, economic warfare, lawfare. And we got into these heated arguments. And I'm like, guys, it's not us in this room. It's it's over there. And we have to think about these in terms of it's not your right versus left or, you know, Trump versus, you know, you know, anti-Trump. It is about Understanding how our society is being undermined from within, understanding that that enemy is outside of our borders and exacerbating these divisions divisions and coming together and actually countering them together. I think if we could do that, then we would be smart enough because, you know, the same type of tools that the Chinese Communist Party used to undermine us, the parties use against each other here.
0: I'm interested in your use of the word defeat. Because once again, as we established early on in the episode, there is no one short of, I I can't even think of anyone who believes this, who thinks the objective is to explicitly aggressively enact regime change in Beijing. Like interestingly enough, there's actually some interesting thought out there that even if China were a democracy, it's not quite unclear. They wouldn't still have a lot of these issues actually going on from a pure like nationalism perspective. But that said, like, what does defeat mean? Does defeat mean the status quo is maintained? So Taiwan isn't invaded. Hong Kong, the rights move in the right direction, slave labor, like what, what do you mean by that term?
1: Well, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, I mean, even, even I think the term defeat implies that you look at war um, in a Western context, right? If you look at war in a, in a Western context, war is a finite, you know, game. It is, there is a beginning and there's an end. Just in, just in, Considering what that term means means that you're not contemplating the the conflict in the same way the Chinese do, which says it, it it's continuous. It is you are always at war, you never stop being at war. And and that war means that you have to continuously fight for advantage in the in 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 the geopolitical world. And so, you know, what I would say is there is no defeat, right? Because in defeat means that you've reached an end and i don't think you reach an end here i think what in fact as a nation what we should should seek to do what we should strive to do is continue to exist and continue to exist in the way in the context that you know we were founded upon which is these ideas of liberty and and rule of law and 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 the ability to live the life that you want to live doing that requires that you can cont- con- continuously struggle against those outside forces that are seeking to undermine and overthrow those ideals. So I don't think I, I don't look at we're the fact that we need to defeat China. What I look at is we need to remain a player in the game in a way that enables us to both maintain our own principles and values, but also sustain some element of that outside our borders. Because, you know, being an island unto ourselves, the only democracy in the world is not going to work out well for us. And, you know, I don't think we're ever going to get to the point where we're not going to have authoritarianism or totalitarianism in the world. It is it is a national, natural state of mankind. And you know, when you look at the writings of Alexander Hamilton and a lot of the founders, they recognize that if you didn't create a a system that allowed for the fact that people will try to be dictatorial if they can be, the Democrats will try to be all powerful, the Republicans will try to be all powerful if they can, you know, so you have to create a system that that um, that you know, fights that and then give the citizenry the rest of the rights to include the right to bear arms in case all that fails, that is that is a thing that we should fight for. But it's a continuous struggle. It's not going to end. And if we if at any time that we think it has ended, then we create we begin to create the kind of um, uh, backsliding that we've seen since the end of the Cold War. What the reason that happened is because we believe, oh, we had one okay, time to put all the weapons away. No, no more time, no more need to defend ourselves.
0: This is the part where I have to speak for the more skeptical part of the audience and basically say, let me just pose the following for you. This isn't likely what they're thinking. They are thinking you are phrasing this in existential terms. When you discuss our domestic side, liberty, the ideals of the constitution, et cetera. What if because in many ways, you could argue that the you know, Chinese Communist Party is engaging in behavior that's reminiscent of, obviously, the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, other totalitarian regimes, but leave Taiwan alone, as in let Taiwan go. If they take it, they take it, except as we already have operation that Hong Kong is lost. Maybe you do some economic things to make it so that Western China Xinjiang isn't relying on labor, um, slave labor as much, but largely... Just leave it alone and accept accept the truth there. For a lot of people, that seems like an okay enough trade. Why do you disagree with that? Not, 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 well, not, 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 not morally. They, they wouldn't say that that's a moral trade, but they say that that's an inevitable trade.
1: Right. So so first of all, let's just address Taiwan. I don't believe Taiwan can be saved. The, the Chinese have too, far too much uh, power, and I don't think we should fight over Taiwan. I think that creates a risk of nuclear war, which could be you know, detrimental to humanity writ large. I do think that we have an obligation, a humanitarian obligation to help the Taiwanese escape uh, widespread slaughter, if that should come, I you know. So things like the Berlin airlift come to mind when I think about how we should react with regard to Taiwan. But when you're talking about existential threat, you know, to me, you know, we have to understand, in my mind, what existential threat means. Existential threat means that the world that we conceived, you know, at least here in the borders of the United States, where the law of the Constitution was predominant and it granted you know everybody you know equal rights that document you know if it becomes essentially undermined by our relationships with a foreign power that seeks to undermine that those ideals because it fears them gaining traction in their own own population here i'm talking obviously about um china if that happens, so in, in you know, when you, when you talk about existential, to me, what that means to me is that you lose political independence and sovereignty, meaning you no longer have the ability as a people to live according to the dictates of the law of the land, which is the constitution. And I think one of the things that we have seen is that the Chinese Communist Party does have the ability to put Pressure on that. And I think one of the best examples of that is the coronavirus. We adopted policies that were not in uh, the CDC's game plans, that were not in the World Health Organization's game plans, and we adopted them. Because we were told that the Chinese Communist Party had a much better approach to tackling the coronavirus. So we basically adopted policies that were counter to many of the, the, the provisions within our own constitution about civil liberties and the extent of government power over citizens. So this is the thing that when, when I talk about existential and, and a lot of people think existential means, OK, well, every human is wiped off the face of the earth or we have nuclear Armageddon. But I think in, in the case of what these two PLA colonels were talking about, it is the and they say this, they say all means military and non-military to uh, get your enemy to accept your interests. You know that means that we lose political independence and sovereignty. We we lose the ability to make the way that we want to live as a people. And I think it, therein lies the problem. And that's not a um, you know I don't a- advocate going to military war. You know to. You know, because I, I worry about the, the escalation of nuclear war, but I do worry that we're not doing enough to protect our independence and so- political independence and sovereignty. And that's what I call the existential threat.
0: Oh, well, well said. And that actually helps clarify what, what the term means. And so I think the key way of summing this up um, from your view from the book, right? Like unrestricted warfare represents separate from the military side of it, the econ- using economics technology, diplomacy, and then media to the division part you're speaking to really challenge American power to the existential sense that you're describing here. So I want to get to Ukraine in a second, but just to like tie a bow on this part, like what, what is like the top line headline response to that beyond just awareness? Because once again, your previous book is called Stealth War. The response to that is, okay, let's not have that be stealthy anymore. Let's talk about it. Like what is the direct response to this war without rules?
1: Yeah, the, the only way that I that I can um, see that we can extract ourselves from it is to decouple, like completely decouple, have the same type of, you know, uh, bi- um, uh, bipolar world that we had during the first Cold War, and then um, with our allies and partners, only invest. And when I mean say, when I say invest, uh, capital, technology, innovation, talent, we only invest in ourselves and we, we exclude you know the, the the authoritarian regimes, I think that is the only way that we can actually preserve ourselves. You know, uh, use the, um, the, the, the whole headline of, of Twitter going on right now. I think one of the things that you have is you have these global platforms where you have these authoritarians that are piling in and we have no idea of sifting between good and bad. And so there's a lot of fragging of our own citizens going on yeah, and I think that's one of the things that that um, Elon Musk is re- is responding to is how do we get the the bots out? How do we get the the, the bad actors out? And if we're going to have a if we're going to fight, let it be, a, you know, an internal fight, not a not a fight where, you know, uh, external parties come in. And I think this is this is where um, we have to separate, because, like I said, War without rules is really amplified because you have these outside interests coming in. And it's funny because we have these debates um, uh, all all day long about, you know, Russia influence. You know, what about Chinese influence? And, and, and it, it is true, the Russians influence and the Chinese influence. And we used to do a lot of this during the Cold War. Unfortunately, we dissolved the U.S. Information Agency. We really stopped... Um, and we understood active measures, but there was no internet. There was no globalization during that time. So I really think separating and then really beginning to invest in ourselves again, there's going to be a lot of healing that happens just because of that. There, this, this, it, this problem that we have in our society today is not um, just about us. It's also about the outsiders that are helping make that worse.
0: What event is necessary to cause the drastic separation you're describing. Because once again, we're having this conversation two and a half years later, it wasn't COVID. It wasn't, you know, not even the TikTok. This is the standard, the TikTok sale couldn't even be conducted during COVID. If there was ever a, when would this very difficult thing be pulled off scenario, it was that. Um, It hasn't been Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has obviously been quasi greenlit by China, what would have to happen? What is, and once again, like, and this is why I love your book and your framing, because your your point is, I was about to say, what's the Pearl Harbor moment, but that suggests that there's going to be a Chinese attack on the bases in Okinawa, which actually speaks against the strategy that you've described in these past two books. So what would a non-kinetic version of that event look like?
1: Well, the, so that's the whole point, right? Don't, don't have a Pearl Harbor. I mean, the only thing that you really, I mean, <laughs> it's funny because the Japanese, you know, there's this famous quote. I can't, I can't, I it was maybe Yamamoto that says, you know, we have, we've awakened a sleeping giant, you know, uh, after Pearl Harbor, you know, the Chinese learn that lesson. They're not going to have, we are not going to have a Pearl Harbor. It is, um, Either we wake up on our own, or we we basically succumb to um, their their method, methodology, which is to use our own people, our own elites against us, our own uh, economic, our own corporate leaders, our own financial leaders against us, because they're incentivized to do so. I think, though, um, one of the things I've seen, and I don't I don't see it being reported uh, quite enough, is that we with the you mentioned the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We are starting to see capital outflows um, now. Uh, and I think it has to do with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So if I had to say, is there is there an event that may be the straw that breaks the camel's back? And is it an event that's plausible um, or actually probable? It is the invasion of Taiwan. I think that's what's going to, precipitate the beginning of the end i think um you know what what xi jinping has done is basically and what he's uh, continuing to do is further protect his economic and political system from any kind of outside attack like russia's experience um, after the invasion of ukraine and you know but the good thing is maybe we're going to i'm hoping maybe that's going to be the, uh, the, the the straw that breaks the camel's back
0: you know, and my initial instinct to that is to say, given everything that's happened in the past two months, it would be an insane decision to invade Taiwan in the <laughs> sense that, in the sense, in, 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 the, in the in the sense that the it would destroy basically because to, to, to your point, it would uh, I dissipate am, the entire strategy that was described here.
1: Uh, I am so like I it, it's there, and I'm not. I'm not. It, it's just I had a conversation two weeks before the invasion um, with uh, with a gentleman who, uh, you know, retired general officer. And he's like, I don't think Putin's going to invade. And, um, and I'm like, that's why he's going to invade. And I think, you know, one of the things that um, you find in studying um, these systems and these, these people who lead these systems is that, um, they have these tendencies, and, the, and one of the tendencies is um, is overreach. And I think uh, Putin um, demonstrated it. I think she is going to demonstrate it. They can't help themselves; it's part of the system. I think it's part of it's partly due to the fact that, you know, over time that system. Um, those leaders tend to push away those who might have prevented them from making those kinds of a decision. So I think, you know, recognize, and, and, and ultimately what's interesting is this may be the thing that saves us is another tendency of humanity. And that is to basically listen to our own counsel. And, and so in our system, we don't want anybody to have ultimate power because ultimate power can be corrupting. And so we, but we still have our own, Issues because of that, but in the system that China has and the system that Russia has, you have these leaders who have done their utmost. They they don't trust anybody, and so they want to you know have their um, their leadership be people that basically are yes men. And so I think this is this is why um, and this is you know for us you know something that we have to um, be prepared for that they overreach and then. You know therein hopefully lies our salvation
0: and and this is where i compelled to give us a bit of a I, I want to be a little positive as, as as we as we near the end here, just that the one bit of pushback I'd have to you is the difference between the invasion of Ukraine and an invasion of Taiwan is that now there is the data point of Ukraine in the sense that if you're Putin, Once again, seems crazy to us, but you've had eight years of fighting in eastern Ukraine. You had weak sanctions. You had all sorts of European kowtowing. The thought is that you could take the city in three days. But now now the West has made clear and the broader allied sets of the world that pushback would actually occur. So you, you, You don't think at all that data point is going to, let's just say, push aside the totalitarian authoritarian instinct towards overreach, like you're saying.
1: Well, I go back to uh, unrestricted warfare and in in the world that the Chinese Communist Party built for themselves, you know, after that, one of the things that they did is they gave themselves a non-convertible currency and strict capital controls. You know, one of the things that we have gone after uh, in Russia is their financial system and their connection and reliance on the West for their financial system. China has none of those issues. And, it, you know, the PBOC is the only uh, entity in the world that can convert the renminbi. And so and then they've you know gone, uh, you know, after this thing called the Belt and Road Initiative. So they've been creating their own economic system where they can trade totally in their own, own currency. You know, they can give renminbi to the Russians in, in, for energy. They can give renminbi now to the Saudis for oil. So, you know, I think... We, <laughs> And they have had a good opportunity to see what the United States um, did to Russia uh, as a result of this invasion of Ukraine. They were already looking to an alternative of Swift called Chips that they're using for currency exchange. You know, amongst their nations, they were they have currency swap agreements with uh, the UK. They have currency swap agreements all over the world. So. You know, when we the things that we did, they studied and they are made they've made sure that those things aren't they're not we're not going to be able to do that to them. So I think um, it's not going to be, you know, hairless in terms of they're not going to it's not going to be that they're not going to have some difficulties. But in terms of what the Russians have had to endure and what they will have to endure, um, I think they're already prepared for it.
0: Yeah, that's a helpful framing. So finally, I want to just I want to just end on this because your um, publisher helpfully sent uh, along long your your specific notes on Ukraine, um, Ukraine today, China tomorrow. So I want to really give because actually just to sum up the episode, it seems that the point of agreement we just have here is that the type of policy you're describing as ideal, a decoupling, is in, is going to require some precipitating event beyond just COVID and the past two years, beyond the Olympics, beyond Dara um and the Houston Rockets. It would, would be what we could agree would be an invasion of Taiwan. You describe it as heavily air power focused. It's not going to be this. We've had episodes with folks talking about how the Chinese are going to have to cross 50 miles of ocean, which causes all sorts of vulnerabilities. You saw this with the sinking of Russia's flagship. So can you just close with why you think pushing back against the emergent conventional wisdom, even amongst military analysts, why do you think the Taiwan situation is, is a given?
1: Well, I mean, I, again, I go back to unrestricted warfare. I mean, the, the, the insight in terms of the Gulf War, I think, was, was very prescient. And, and more importantly, when you, when you study the weaponry that the Chinese have arrayed on their side of the strait, it is, it is so overwhelming in terms of the they don't run out of bullets. And when, I, when I'm talking about bullets, I'm talking about rockets and missiles that just continue to rain down on Taiwan. So there's no place to go. There's no place. It is it is literally and they they can just continuously just bombard the island until it's not. It looks like the surface of the moon. And so what again, what I think about when I think about Taiwan is I think about the people because I don't think the Chinese Communist Party thinks about the people. And so rather than thinking about how do we prevent um, the Chinese from taking Taiwan, they're going to take Taiwan. What I think about is how do we prevent massive death? And you know, we're not, we can't prevent massive destruction to the extent that the Taiwanese re- resist because the armament is so overwhelming in quantity, just in quantity. It is massive. And I think that's the thing that we don't pay enough attention to mass brings its own characteristics in terms of what you can hope to achieve. There will not be a single living thing on the island if the Chinese use all the weapons that they have arrayed um, uh, on their side of the Strait. That's that's what I react to. Would they do that? They would because they don't care about the people. They only care about the ground It is about the ground. And so they will use whatever means necessary. If you look at if you study the Chinese Communist Party, they are absolutely happy to sacrifice people. And it's you sacrifice people for the greater good of the Chinese nation. Right. So they they very much believe that you know the Chinese Communist Party is the one that's going to lead China back to its rightful place in the world and that you know the the social contract that enables them to do that you know, we can't do this without you so our social contract is this you give up all political freedom and we will restore us to greatness and when we do you know some sacrifices will have to be made they can be in the tens of millions. That's okay, because it's for the greater, in, you know, in, the, in their mind, it's, it, yes, it's horrible to contemplate. It's horrible to contemplate that there, there could be an organization that thinks this way. But this is the way the Chinese Communist Party thinks. It's not about um, the people. It's really about the prestige of, uh, of China. And more importantly, it's about maintaining control over the population. They have promised, and she has said, I'm not leaving it to the next generation. They have promised to bring Taiwan back into the fold. And Xi Jinping, I believe, plans to deliver on that promise, come hell or high water, and whether or not any Taiwanese survive.
0: Well, uh, we're not going to get that positive note that I was uh, vaguely searching for. But uh, on a positive note, though, I really enjoy your books. This is a save us from the precipice. Um, Please shout out um, your two most recent books. Obviously, it's been in a bit, but like Stealth War still holds up. Obviously, you're taking a long picture. So please shout the books out and we'll take it out.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, please pick up War Without Rules. I think it's a great way to kind of contemplate these ideas. I wrote it. You know, I, I'm, I, I love uh, studying war. I love uh, understanding about the history of war. I think war without rules, you know, really in a good way uh highlights the the incredible work of these two pla colonels that you know really helps us understand the way the chinese communist party thinks and of course stealth war is my you know interpretation of my last years of service where i really uh came to understand you know how the chinese were fighting their fight
0: general spotting thank you for joining us again on the realignment
1: thank you so much
0: Finder, Substack, subscription, bookshop, book purchases, and of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.